American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. But all of that expansion could potentially be undercut if the U.S., the states uh, that comprise the U.S., and U.S. citizens are unable to borrow money to finance their entrepreneurial endeavors. So that's the problem that the Constitutional Convention faces. It's a problem of debt, and it's a very significant and deep problem. What the Convention decides to do is to create a strong federal government, a federal government with extensive powers over the economy, the ability to coin money, the ability to tax, and ultimately the ability to set policy. Now we'll see uh, in, in future segments how they actually use that policy, and in particular what happens when they hand policy over to an individual who's actually present in that room in Philadelphia, Alexander Hamilton, who will become the first Secretary of the Treasury. But his ability to shape power, or to shape policy, is already implicit in the Constitution. Now there's one additional area, a third area of compromise, it's related to that second area, but probably deserves a little bit of discussion on its own. And that is the ability of the federal government to control trade. Here's another major compromise that comes out of the Constitution. In the years after American independence, but before the Constitution, each one of the 13 states set its own trade policy. And what this meant, quite simply, was chaos. States were taxing products as they crossed borders in between states. States were setting their own import and export policies intentionally in ways to undermine the policies of their neighbors. So if New York had a 20% import tariff, New Jersey would lower theirs below that of New York. And imports would flood into New Jersey instead of New York. This kind of competition was creating chaos in the American economy. And through what becomes known as the Commerce Clause, Congress is given a wide, somewhat undefined power to govern commerce in general, including, some would argue, commerce between and even within states. Over time, the federal government would expand the scope of that power. And by the time we get into the 20th century, we'll see that that power is actually used in ways that directly shape the economy, ways that would have been, in many senses, unthinkable during the 1800s. The use of the Commerce Clause is still in debate today, but one thing's for sure. What the federal government has done with the Commerce Clause over time has distinctively shaped the nature of American capitalism. So the Constitution is certainly a set of political compromises. That's usually how it's been remembered. And it's been seen as a particularly wise set of political compromises, at least by its supporters. Flexible enough to bend but not break as circumstances and culture change over time. But at the heart of the Constitution is also a set of economic compromises. And these were very important. They allow the federal government to set policy and they also ensure that slavery is going to continue to exist and be a major part of what turns out to be the first 80 years of the economic development of the United States under the Constitution. The significance of that can't be overstated. Now, 
under the Constitution, under its economic compromises, the U.S. would enter a path of economic development that has rarely, if ever, been replicated by other post-colonial nations. Let's see if we can look in more detail and figure out some of the aspects of the Constitution and the early creation of the federal state and federal economic policy. Let's see if we can figure out what makes that development unique. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Thank you.